chapter 1, as we think about Christmas time and the coming of the Lord to earth, John chapter 1 is one of the greatest passages of Scripture. We talk about God becoming man. And he tells us in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14 he says, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We oftentimes call this book of John the Gospel of John, but really it's not the Gospel of John, it's the Gospel of Jesus. The Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men could become the sons of God. King Solomon stood in his lavish temple that he had built and he said in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 37, he said, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have builded. Did you ever stop and think, if God could dwell on earth, what would he be like? What would he say? What would he do? It's kind of the, the main theme of the, of the book of John is that God did come to earth. He did dwell on earth as a man, as a human being. And these four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are not biographies because a biography has the idea of entirety. It gives the whole life story of a person. And yet the last book, the last verse of the book of John, chapter 21, verse 25 says, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written, every one of them, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. You ever stop and think about all that could be written? If the world couldn't contain the books, there's a lot of things that Jesus did that we don't know about. They're not given to us. They're not recorded for us. And so these Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John, are not the full picture. They are just kind of snapshots of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ that give us a little bit of an idea of who he was and what he was. We think about snapshots. We think about pictures. They tell us that a picture is worth a thousand words. But we all know that a picture pales in comparison to the real thing. Amen? And so we have some snapshots of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as amazing as these Gospels are, someday we'll get to see the real thing. Amen? We'll walk with Him and we'll talk with Him and we'll touch Him. And we'll know everything about Him. All the parts that were unwritten the earth-sized library of books that we'll get to know all about someday. John stressed the prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament as well as the symbols and the types and so forth. And these Old Testament pictures that John pulled out of the, out of the big book, you might say, the Old Testament part of the Bible, pointed to something and someone who would come later in the New Testament which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, we understand that the entire Bible is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
All of history is his story. It's all about him. And he's on every page. He's in every type. He's in every symbol. He's in every shadow that's given to us in the Bible. And so the Gospel of John explains the fulfillment of all of those things in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, it is John and from John that we learn that Jesus is the Lamb of the Old Testament sacrifices. If you look down at verse 29 of chapter 1, notice what it says there, John chapter 1 verse 29, it says, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. Here's the theme of the whole Bible. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. And all of the other lambs in the Old Testament, all of the sacrifices that were made, all of them pointed to this one Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. They were just pictures of the perfect Lamb that was yet to come. Today, there's no need for us to sacrifice lambs. We don't need animal sacrifices as they did in the Old Testament because those were only pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ. They only pointed to the true lamb that would come. And once Jesus came and we have the fulfillment, we no longer need the type, amen? We have Jesus Christ. And then also it was John that tells us that Jesus is the latter in the Old Testament. He's the latter. In chapter 1 and verse 51, he says, And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. He was carried up into heaven. Jacob, you remember, dreamed about a ladder that was stretched from earth to heaven. And he talked about the angels going up and down. How'd you like to see a ladder and see angels going up and down? I was in a, I was in a um, Cracker Barrel not too long ago. And uh, they had a Christmas tree there, and they had a ladder, and they had a Santa Claus on there, and it was mechanically going, climbing up the steps and going up and back down the ladder. And uh, that's not any comparison whatsoever to the angels, but in the, in the Old Testament, there is the picture of the, of the ladder that Jacob saw. He dreamed of this ladder, and the angels ascending and descending up into heaven. Better than Jack and the Beanstalk, isn't it? We've got the true ladder that's given to us. And Jesus, he is, John clarifies that Jesus is that ladder. And the only connection for us to climb the ladder, you might say, to go to heaven is climb through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one. He's the only way. He's the only one that can reach up and take hold of God's hand and reach down and take hold of man's hand and bring us back together. That's what Job talked about when he said, Oh, that I would have a, a daysman one that could reach God for me and reach me for God and bring us together. And then it was John that tells us that Jesus is the temple in the Old Testament. If you look over to chapter 2 of John, look at verse 19. John chapter 2 and verse 19, Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had said. You see, Solomon's temple of the Old Testament, with all of its 
gold and marble and brass and all of the magnificence of that temple, the breathtaking beauty of that temple, and everything about that temple was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ who was yet to come. Even the color schemes that were there in that temple were pictures of the various aspects of the character and nature of the Lord Jesus. As you walk into the temple, you come into the courtyard and you pass by the brazen altar where the lamb was slain. And the blood was put on the altar was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, that lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. You would come to the brazen laver where the water was there for the priest to come for washing. And Jesus is called the water of the word. In fact, Jesus is the word. And we come to him for cleansing and for washing. Inside the temple, there was the table of showbread. And Jesus is the bread of life. And there was the golden lampstand. And Jesus is the light of the world. And there was the altar of incense which pictured the high priest making intercession for us. And Jesus is our high priest, whoever liveth and maketh intercession for you and for me. And so John tells us about Jesus being that temple of the Old Testament. And then John also tells us that Jesus is the brazen serpent in the Old Testament. Get over to chapter 3 and verse number 14. And John says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, the people of God in Moses' day were being judged by God, and they were bitten by snakes. And God told Moses, if you remember the story, that he was to take a, make a brass snake and put it on a pole, and he was to lift that up, and anybody who was bitten by the snakes were brought, and they would look to that brazen snake on the, on the pole, and they would be healed. That snake on a pole is where our uh, medical field gets the symbol for the, for the doctors. In Israel, when they brought them and they looked on that snake, and they were healed, those that had been bitten by the snake, they didn't have to clean up their act. They didn't have to do a lot of good works. They just had to look and live. And the same is true for us today, isn't it? Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And Jesus was lifted up, and we come to him, and we don't have to do a lot of good works, and we don't have to get our life all straightened out. We come just as we are, and as the songwriter said, look and live, look and live. We look to Jesus on the cross. He who became the very image, he became that sin for us. And when we look, he gives us that eternal life. And then John tells us that Jesus is the manna of the Old Testament. In chapter number 6, in verse 31, he speaks of that manna. In verse 31, John chapter 6, he says, Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that, that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. And the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life into the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. You see, everything about the manna, right down to its very shape, 
its size, its color, its consistency, all of it were pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as God provided manna for the children of Israel in the Old Testament to feed upon, Jesus Christ is that spiritual food for you and for me. And he provides that food for us to come. And by the way, they had to go gather that manna each day, and God wants us to gather some spiritual manna every day, amen, from his word and get the spiritual food that we need for our lives. And so I want you to go back to chapter 1 with me again and look at that first verse. And in verse number 1, there's several things that we see in this chapter. First of all, we see Jesus' revelation. We see it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He says Jesus is the Word. Notice the last phrase of that verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, what's the next word? Was God. The verb there that's used for that word was, is it simply means an eternal existence. Eternal existence. He was, He is, and He forever will be. He always was God. Jesus never became God. He became man, but he never became God. He always was God. He's the eternally existent one. And here, he is simply revealed to us as God. There are three words in this revelation that I want you to look at with me tonight. First word is the word incarnation. The word incarnation, it, it means... He became flesh. He was made flesh. Verse 14 says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We use that big word incarnation, but it's very simple. God became man. What a profound statement. God was made flesh. God Almighty limited Himself to the dimensions of a human body. We see... Sometimes when we think about him, we, we, we seem to picture him with a, with a holy halo over his head and sort of, sort of an aura around him and about him. But he was flesh and bone like you and me. He had limbs, arms, and hands, and hair. He had internal organs. He had to process food. He wasn't some phantom spirit that floats around. He who at his core was God, became 100% man. God robed in flesh. He was as much human as you are and as I am. Did you ever think were all of his teeth perfectly straight? Are yours? When he was a teenager, did he ever get a zit? <laughs> did he bite his fingernails? I don't know if they had manicures back in that day when he was here on earth, but John seems to emphasize that Jesus was just like you and me. He got thirsty. He was hungry. He got weary. He was tired. He had to sleep. He had to wake up, teenagers. He had to wake up in the morning. When he woke up, what was his breath like? What do you think? 
You may say, well, that sort of sounds like inappropriate talk, like we're bringing God down to man's level. I didn't do that. God did. God did. John 11 says that when he came to the tomb where Lazarus was buried, he sighed, he, he groaned from within over the death of his friend Lazarus. He then outwardly wept. John eleven thirty five, 35, the shortest verse in the Bible says Jesus wept. He wept literal, literal tears just like you and I weep. Just as on the cross he bled literal blood and his heart stopped beating and he died. The eternal God died in a human form just like you and I will someday if the rapture doesn't take place first. All of these things he did just like we do except for sin. He who knew no sin, amen, became sin for us. And it's a good thing that he was human because he became our substitute. He took our place. There's no way we can completely wrap our heads and our minds and our thoughts around this truth of God taking on human flesh. That's why the Bible says in 1 Timothy 3.16, it says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. 100% God, 100% man, it doesn't compute with us, does it? We have a hard time figuring that out. It's, the Bible calls it a mystery, a miracle. The Old Testament oftentimes predicts his coming as God and king, but sometimes as man. Isaiah 53 and verse 3 says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Which is he? Is he God or is he man? He's both, isn't he? He's both. He's the God-man. In Luke chapter 2, we have the only story that's given to us from Jesus' childhood. He wisely answered the questions of the doctors and the, the theologians. And, and I'm sure when he was answering those questions that day, probably one of the questions was asked is, how old are you? Huh. I would have asked that question if I listened and heard him that day. And that's just speculation, but I think he probably might have said something like this. He might have said, well, on my mother's side, I'm 12. But on my father's side, I'm much older than my mother. I'm the same age as my father. Oh, and also before Abraham was, I am. And all of his life, there was a dual nature, God and man. He would get thirsty on his mother's side. But on his father's side, he would say, I'm the water of life. On his mother's side, he'd say, I'm hungry. But on his father's side, he'd say, I'm the bread of life. On his mother's side, he had no money or possessions. But on his father's side, he owned the cattle on a thousand hills. On his mother's side, he wept at the tomb of Lazarus. But on his father's side, he said, Lazarus, come forth. And brought him back to life. On his mother's side, he fell under the load of sin as he carried the cross. On his father's side, he bore the sins of all of mankind on his shoulders. On his mother's side, he died. On his father's side, he rose again from the dead. 
Amazing word, incarnation, God made flesh. There's a second word I want you to think about, and that's the word identification. Identification. Verse 14 says, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Don't miss that tonight. The Bible says he dwelt. The word dwelt comes from the root word that's translated tabernacle. It means to camp with, to dwell with, to be among. Our minds go back to the Old Testament tabernacle, the portable tabernacle, and God had commanded that tabernacle to be built. Why did God command them to build it way back in the Old Testament when they were wandering around in the wilderness? He had them build it because it was a picture of Jesus. It had them, he had them build it because it was a place to worship. But most of all, he had them build it because it was a place where he could dwell with his people. He tabernacled, he dwelt among us. You see, God doesn't want to watch us from a distance and see what we do and how we do. In Exodus 25 and verse 8, it says, But let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. My God is on the scene, and he's highly involved in every single aspect of my life, every single day of my life. And in this age of grace in which we live today, he dwells among us, but he also dwells in us who are saved and born again, who are children of God. Incarnation. He took on flesh. Identification is when he entered into my flesh. And then the third word is the word illumination. Illumination. In verse number 14, it says, The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And then it says, And we beheld his glory. When Christ came to earth, he revealed the glory of God. The word beheld comes from a word, a Greek word that we translate into our English language, theater. We beheld, we saw, just like this morning we sat out here and we saw and listened to the choir proclaim the story of Jesus and the drama talk about Jesus. This word, he dwelt among us, he became like the, the theater that we could see God and see what he was like. The disciples saw the curtain rise and they saw the spotlight shine on the lovely face of the Lord Jesus Christ and when they saw his face, they knew they were looking at God. We beheld his glory. In John 2 and verse 11, it says, This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Canaan of Galilee and manifest forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. It says his, his miracles manifest his glory. And as we look on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, God wants us, as we look into his word, to understand him better, to get to know him better, to see a little bit of his glory, to see what God is like. Because it's not just a theater picture or a theater production that we look at. We get to look backstage, you might say. We get to go back there and get the autograph and fellowship with and commune with God himself. And then he invites us into his house. He says, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there ye may be also. We get to go home with him. And after many good times, he reveals that 
His house is our house. And we get to live there forever. John chapter 1 and verse 12 says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. We put our faith and trust in him, and most of us here tonight have done that, and we've become a part of the family of God, a child of God, and we're invited to his house to get to be with him for all of eternity. And so we see, first of all, Jesus' revelation. Secondly, I want you to notice Jesus' rejection. His rejection. Look at verse number 10 and 11 with me, with me in chapter 1, and it says in verse 10, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Can you imagine that? He's in the world. The very world that he made, and they didn't know him. And then the next verse says, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. It says, he was in the world, and the world was made by him. Let's talk about creation for just a moment. I believe, and you do too, that God created everything, Amen. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. If there was such a thing as a big bang, it's yet to come. It hasn't taken place yet, and it will happen to those who have rejected their creator. And there'll be some big bangs in the book of Revelation during the tribulation period. It's interesting, atheists and evolutionists say, you creationists believe what you believe by faith. We believe what we believe based on reason. Let me tell you something. We all believe what we believe by faith because none of us were there when it happened. Amen? I wasn't there. You weren't there. The evolutionist wasn't there. The atheist wasn't there. And I'll admit that we must have a... We must... We may not have as much faith as the atheist and the evolutionist. Because it takes more faith to believe what they believe than it does to believe the Word of God. The fact is, people can believe whatever they want to believe in. You can believe whatever you want to. And evolutionists must rely on what they think and what they believe. And they have to want it bad enough and believe it bad enough to set aside reasoning. What could be their motive? Could it be that they don't want to admit that there's a God? Could it be that they don't want to have to answer to God for their sin? And so they say, there must not be a God, because if there's not a God, then I don't have to answer to Him. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 5 says, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old. Notice God says, for this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old. God created, God made. When the atheists and when, the, when, when the, those who do not believe in creation, when, when they don't, the evolutionists, when they don't believe, the, the Bible says they willingly, they believe what they want to believe. Why don't they believe? Because they don't want to. What a wonder 
that the creation rejects the creator. Why did Israel reject him? Verse number 11 says he came into his own and his own received him not. The Old Testament prophets pointed to the Lord Jesus over and over and over again. Jesus fulfilled over 330 direct prophecies and they beheld his glory and they saw the miraculous works and they saw the light, but they put the light out. He never sinned. They knew deep down inside of their hearts that they could not convict him of sin. They tried it. Israel was not just ignorant, they were willingly ignorant. Why did they not believe? Because they didn't want to believe. And when you don't want to believe, I don't care what kind of amount of evidence I can give to you, if you don't want to believe, you're already convinced you're not going to believe anyway. The Lord Jesus Christ gave them every opportunity possible to come to the truth and to come to him. He said, I am the way, but they would not walk with him. He said, I am the truth, but they would not believe him. He said, I am the life, but they crucified him. Why did Israel reject him? Because they didn't want him. They wanted to reject him. Why do sinners reject him today? Because they don't want to receive him. Look at, back at John chapter 1, look at verse 4 and 5. It says in verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of the man of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He, John, was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth, what's the next two words? Every man that cometh into the world. You would think that if a blind man saw light, he would be thankful, but they weren't. If you're in a pitch dark room and you're trying to do something, you're trying to accomplish something in that pitch dark room, you're going to be excited to get some light in order to accomplish what you want to do. Unless you're trying to accomplish something that isn't good or isn't right. You see, if you're not trying to accomplish something of value, something that's worthwhile, something that is right, you don't want the light because when the light comes on, you're going to get angry. It's going to expose your sin. In John 3 and verse 19, Jesus said, And this is the condemnation that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. Why did they love darkness rather than light? Because their deeds were What is the opposite of truth? Don't answer it. But most of us would think error, right? The opposite of truth is error. But in the Bible, the opposite of truth is sin. It's sin. Error is the baggage that comes along with our sin. In other words, people reject the truth not because they believe a lie, but because they have a lifestyle that they want to validate and make okay, and so they won't believe the truth because they want their sin. Error is the baggage that comes along with our sin. Our universities today tell our young people, you're not a creation of God, you're a result of some sort of a big bang, a random accident. And that sounds stupid at first when you think about it, and yet it resonates with some of our young people because they have a lot of temptations in their life 
it strikes a chord with them. It's something that they like to hear because if there is no God, then I can live like I want to. I can live in co-ed dorms and I can go out in these crazy demonstrations about all kinds of stupid things. If there's no God, I have no accountability. I came from an animal. And so it's all right if I satisfy my animal instincts. The young person doesn't reject the truth for a lie. He rejects the truth for the sin that he wants to do. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, the Lord said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. You see, it's willful ignorance in order to justify a sinful lifestyle. And so Jesus Christ was revealed. Then Jesus Christ was rejected. But I want you to notice also Jesus' reception. Look at his reception in verse number 12. He says, but, aren't you glad for the word but? Amen. One place the Lord said, but such were some of you, but ye are washed, ye are cleansed. Here he says, he came into his own, and his own received him not, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Many have received him. Many have seen the light. Many have accepted the light. Many have been born again and become children of God. You see, receiving Christ, and you know this as well as I do, it's not the same as joining the church. It's not the same as getting baptized or confirmed or taking communion or living a good life. Receiving Christ is admitting that I am a sinner and I need a Savior. And that Jesus is the Savior who lived a sinless life and died on the cross at Calvary, sacrificed his life, shed his blood for you and for me, and rose again from the dead so that we too could know Christ and have eternal life and so that we could know one day that we too will rise and be with him for all of eternity. I'm glad the Lord also said in the book of John, he said, as many as received him to them, gave he the power to become the sons of God. But then he went a step farther and he said, Him that cometh unto me, I will what? In no wise cast out. Aren't you glad he's never turned somebody down? I know some of you perhaps were a little bit nervous when you asked that young lady to become your wife and to marry you. And you feared that she might say no. Jesus never says no. He's never turned anybody down. You and I who know him as Lord and Savior know that because we've come to him and asked and he has with open arms accepted us, received us into his family. So we see Jesus revealed. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He was rejected came into his own, his own received him not. But thank God, he was also received. As many as received him. Aren't you glad you've received him tonight? 
You know, I'm glad I'm not, and I don't say this in any way in pride or anything, but I'm glad I'm not a part of that group that rejected him. We talk about sometimes when people get saved, they make peace with God. We're not at war with God anymore. We've made peace with God. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the reasons why I know I'm saved is because I got the peace with God. I'm not fighting against him, not pushing against him. I've yielded to him and made peace with him. What a wonderful Savior. The world, the word, became flesh. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. That's what Christmas is all about. God incarnate. God became flesh. God became the son of man so that the sons of men could become the sons of God. As many as believed him, to them gave he the power to become sons of God and the daughters of God too. Are you one of his children tonight? I trust that you are. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the wonderful story. Not a fable, not a fairy tale. True story that God became flesh. You revealed yourself to us through your son, Jesus Christ. Yes, there's many that have rejected you. We are privileged. Most of us here tonight are privileged because we're a part of that group who have received you, not have rejected you. And if there's any here tonight that are not sure, if they've never trusted you, would you help them to do that tonight? Not be a part of that group that have rejected because they want to live their own lifestyle. They want to not have accountability to you. That won't change the fact they'll still stand before you. You said it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. We'll stand before you one day. Lord, thank you that we can stand before you as one who received you not as one who rejected you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for revealing yourself to us through your Son. For we pray these things in His name. Amen.